The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm Will Appleton with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for November 5th, 2022. Given the recent attack on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, by a man who believed in a variety of conspiracy theories regarding everything from the coronavirus pandemic to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, I thought it would be interesting to revisit a previous conversation on the topic. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from 2021. In the episode, Evelyn Dueck and Quinta Jurassic sat down with Joseph Ashinsky, an associate professor of political science at the University of Miami, to discuss if social media platforms should play a role in limiting the spread of conspiracy theories, why Ashinsky believes conspiracy theories aren't actually at an apex, what kinds of people are drawn to ideas like QAnon, and more. Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 8th, 2021. We're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's mini-series on our online information ecosystem. If you're listening to this podcast, the odds are that you've heard a lot about QAnon recently, and you might even have read some alarming reporting about how belief in the conspiracy theory is on the rise. But is it really? Listen to this podcast to find out and then listen to it backwards for the real answer. Evelyn Duick and I spoke with Joe Oshinsky, an associate professor of political science at the University of Miami who studies conspiracy theories. He explained why conspiracy theories in America aren't actually at a new apex, what kinds of people are drawn to ideas like QAnon, and what role, if any, social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter should have in limiting the spread of conspiracy theories. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 8th, the truth about conspiracy theories. Joe, thank you so much for coming on. We wanted to start with a very simple question for you, which no doubt has a clear and universally agreed upon answer. What is a conspiracy theory? A conspiracy theory, and it's great to be here, by the way, is an explanation of events or circumstances that cites a small group of usually powerful people working in secret for their own benefit against the common good and in a way that undermines our bedrock ground rules against the widespread use of force and fraud. And further, this explanation has yet to be adopted by the appropriate epistemological authorities with open data and evidence. So easy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, exactly what I what I read in all the news articles when people talk about conspiracy theories. So accurate and descriptive. Speaking of news articles, I think it's fair to say that the dominant narrative right now is that we are in an age of conspiracy theories, that the internet has sent people down crazy rabbit holes that has brought us to a post-truth era where large segments of society are completely detached from reality and um, they spend time reading stray tweets or dissecting photos photos of public figures finding hidden messages. Is that belief, that narrative warranted? Are beliefs in conspiracy theories on the rise? No, it's not warranted at all. It's sensational reporting. And the interesting thing is, just as you can go to news sources today and find journalists saying, this is the golden age of conspiracy theory, you could find that every year. 
So you can go back to the to the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, and journalists have always been saying this. And they never say it with any evidence to back up their contention. So if there is no empirical basis for the ideas that conspiracy theories are on the rise, what do you think is driving the notion that this is the conspiracy age? And I'm going to say, I, I assume that the the narrative that conspiracy theories are on the rise doesn't quite meet your definition of a conspiracy theory about conspiracy theories, but please do correct me if I'm wrong about that. <laughs> well, journalists say this all the time, and they've said it throughout history. And I think part of the issue here is just the incentives of journalists. If you're going to write about a problem, you, you're going to make it more sensational. You're going to say the problem is worse now because news is about what's new. And particularly bad news is going to get more engagement and clicks than, hey, things are exactly the same as they were for the last few decades. So that's one problem and that's probably driving the false narrative. The other issue, too, I think, is one of an optical illusion, is that when people used to talk about conspiracy theories, it was harder to track. But now when people talk about them on social media, it's easy to see that talk, to quantify it, for anyone to look at it. And then it's easy to say, well... I can see it now, so there must be more of it now than there ever was in the past. But that's just an optical illusion, because it may very well be the case there was more of it in the past, but we just weren't able to to capture it that well. I mean, we weren't polling very much on conspiracy theories before a decade ago, and there wasn't social media that was searchable, <laughs> searchable text prior to, you know, 15 years ago. So when people say there's more of it now because of social media, because of the internet, largely what they're saying is I can see it on social media and the internet. Yeah. And it's probably just worth underlining that that would apply more broadly to many of the problems that people sort of pin on the internet, for which, you know, it, it may magnify some of them, but certainly part of it is that it makes it visible and tractable and searchable in a way that it hasn't been before. So there's this idea that one side of politics is more prone to conspiracy theories than the other, or perhaps maybe every side of politics thinks that the other side is more prone to conspiratorial thinking than they are. So for Democrats, there's QAnon, which we'll come back to. We can't avoid it today. But for the Republicans, there's Russiagate. So what does the empirical research say about the distribution of beliefs in conspiracy theories? Is there any side of politics or any particular demographic that is more prone to such beliefs? Uh, no. <laughs> I, the, the left really prides itself on thinking that they're immune to conspiracy theories and that the right is a bunch of conspiracy cranks. But the evidence for this is, again, wanting. When we poll on beliefs in specific conspiracy theories, who believes in it is largely a function of which conspiracy theory we're asking about. If we ask about conspiracy theories that impugn the left, then of course the right believes in it. And if we ask about ones that impugn the right and Republicans, then the left believes in it. So all it really comes down to is which ones are we asking about because everyone likes to accuse the other side and largely in equal numbers. There are some exceptions to this, but largely those exceptions are simply a function of political elites pushing these beliefs. But even in those cases, it's more a function of the elites driving the belief than it is something having to do with the psyches of Republicans versus Democrats or conservatives versus liberals as some bottom-up process. I want to dig into that a little more because I, I think it, it raises some interesting questions. As you say, the there's maybe a distinction we can draw between the parties or political groups in terms of which political leaders are seeding, encouraging conspiracy theories, voicing conspiracy theories. Right now, I think you, I would certainly argue just... Qualitatively, you see a lot more of that in the Republican Party as opposed to the Democratic Party. Also, you know, Evelyn, I think, is fairly points out that there are plenty of Democrats and people on the left who believed in a sort of exaggerated version of what took place 
between Trump and Russia. At the same time, you know, there's a grain of truth there, right? Or more than a grain, right? Like there, there was coordination between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. Russia did interfere in 2016 to help President Trump win the election versus QAnon, which is sort of arguing, you know, there's a satanic cabal of pedophiles who are running the world. I'd argue that's a little less connected to reality. So am I wrong there? Am I, you know, exaggerating because of my own sort of epistemological biases and that I, I spent a few years reporting on the, the Russia story? Or is there really a substantive distinction we can draw? Well, first of all, QAnon, when you measure it correctly, it's not big or getting bigger. And because it pulls, because the percentages who really believe it are so small, we're talking five, six, seven percent, we don't find consistent differences between left and right in terms of how much they believe it. And in many of my polls, I find that partisanship and left-right ideology are not significant predictors of who believes QAnon. Essentially, once you account for people's angst towards the establishment writ large, towards their personality traits, you don't find that republicanism or conservatism drives QAnon at all. And supporters come largely from both sides. So oftentimes people on the left will hold up QAnon as if that's some, you know, oh my God, only far right people believe that. Well, yeah, according to the media, but what evidence do they have of that? I mean, one thing that's going on is this problem of observational equivalence where anything we don't like, we call far right. And that's just trying to squish something that isn't on a left-right continuum onto a single-dimensional left-right continuum. You know, QAnon is born of a lot of stuff, but it's not National Review-style conservatism. (laughs) It's not like somebody was like, oh my God, I got into Ronald Reagan and then read some William F. Buckley and now Satanic Baby Eaters. I mean, the people who, who buy into this hate both parties writ large. They're detached from, from the political system for the most part. So it's not some far right thing, no matter how much the media calls it far right. And in terms of your first point, I mean, people were believing all sorts of nonsense regarding Trump's relationship with Russia. And a lot of it just turned into playing tennis without a net. Where it's, you know, people people were making all sorts of claims. There was going to be a sex tape dropping. And then I think there were articles in top outlets saying, you know, Trump has been a Russian agent for 40 years. So all sorts of wild claims that went far beyond the evidence. And then in the end, everyone says, well, there was something there. So I was right all along. Well, no, (laughs) you don't get to take 10 leaps beyond the available evidence. And then just because there's something there, you have to say you were right all along. So I just want to push on the QAnon point a little bit more, because I think what you're saying is really, really important, but it's obviously pretty provocative and quite contrary to what the dominant narratives and what most people will have read about QAnon. I suspect this is a bunch of new stuff. So Maybe to to push on the point about the relationship between QAnon and the internet in particular, because you've said both that QAnon isn't really necessarily on the rise and that the internet doesn't necessarily fuel greater conspiracism. It seems like you can't really describe QAnon as anything but a creation of the internet. You know, it started with posts from the eponymous Q in a forum on dark corners of the internet and then sort of spread like wildfire. And it did, you know, sort of bubble up from the bottom as opposed to be spread by by elites, at least initially, although we can come back to how that changed. It feels like, and I say feels like because, you know, I I suspect you're going to talk about evidence, but it feels like the internet, you know, does somehow connect people to conspiracy theories at best and at worst actually helps amplify them because of the way that algorithmic amplification works. That sort of seems like a logical narrative. What's wrong with that story? So here's a typical conversation I'll have with a journalist. They'll call me and say, I saw this conspiracy theory on Twitter, and I'm concerned about it because everyone's going to see it and everyone's going to believe it. And I say, well, did you see it? And they say, yeah. And I say, so you must believe it. And they say, no. And I say, well, what makes you so special? You know, what are your magic powers that no one else apparently has that helps you resist these online conspiracy theories? 
Well, the answer is that that people aren't going to believe things that are, don't already match their worldviews. People just don't believe anything they see online everywhere. No matter no matter how many times the media tries to say that this is what's going on, it's just not what's going on. We have a hundred years of research into political communication. I mean, people are are very picky with what they ingest in terms of news sources and and then even within that what they choose to believe from those so you know just because someone slips on a banana peel and sees a QAnon tweet doesn't mean they're going to be a QAnon supporter so to your first point it's true that QAnon is born of the internet but you know whatever the communication technology is at any given point in history that's what conspiracy theories and every other piece of discourse is going to wind up on. So that's not really saying much. But even if we take that point, then we would say, well, it should have been growing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger over time. But we don't find that. I mean, when we just ask the simple question, is, are you a believer in QAnon? In 2019, 5%. And then following up those polls several times since then, we never got numbers that were higher than the margin of error. So it was 5%, 6%, 7%, but never never like 10 20 30%. And we were told by the media all through the summer of 2020 that this was big and getting bigger. It's gone mainstream. Now, put aside the logical fallacy that something could be both far right and extreme and also mainstream at the same time, the data just didn't back this up. And even the news outlets are starting to catch on to this now. So whereas, you know, top reporters at CNN were saying over the summer, it's big and getting bigger. You know, they they put out, you know, little articles in February of this year saying it's truly a fringe movement. It's not big and it's never gotten bigger. So what happened was that there was a, a echo chamber for journalists where they were all just repeating this stuff over and over again. It's mainstream and far right. And that's just what wound up, you know, getting, getting repeated over and over again. But there was never good evidence for that. So I want to go back to what you said about exposure and belief, because this was actually a question that I had for you. You know, if I see something online that's conspiratorial, like, for example, the pandemic video that went viral last year and claimed that the pandemic is a product of a villainous cabal using the virus and potential vaccine to gain power. I don't become radicalized and I feel confident that I could see a million such videos and I would still be unlikely to believe them. But as you say, there's often this sense of, oh, they will definitely fall for this online, but I would never. But there is some sort of research around conspiratorial thinking and inclination. So what is the relationship between exposure and belief beyond just confirming your own views? So that's largely it. I mean, we all understand left-right motivations when it comes to media exposure and media effects. So we know that if if a left-leaning person goes and watches Hannity, they're not going to be that influenced, (laughs) right? Just the same if we have Fox News viewers watch Maddow, they're not going to all of a sudden adopt all of Maddow's views. But this works with conspiracy theories, too. Some people are are more predisposed than others. So they're more likely to buy into conspiracy theories when they are exposed. And what we find in our data is that, you know, just like other scholars have found, people who tend to use social media more, for example, tend to believe more conspiracy theories. But that correlation is entirely conditional on whether they're already predisposed to believe in conspiracy theories or not. Largely the people who are already disposed, they go out looking for it, they find what they already agree with, and they adopt the specific theories. So in a lot of ways, you can think of it as they do it to themselves. They're looking for what they already like, and they're adopting it. So you mentioned that you, you've you done some polling on support for QAnon and it's low and has remained low. I want to ask you a little bit more about that because I think some of our listeners might have seen polling that 
points in another direction. So there is a, a YouGov poll this January that found that 30% of self-identified Republicans have a favorable view of QAnon. There was another poll in September 2020 that found that 56% of Republicans believe that QAnon is mostly or partly true, according to Daily Coast Civics. How do you explain the divide between that polling and your polling? Is it because QAnon is just so sort of inchoate that it's hard to explain you know, what it is in a polling format. And so people might sign on to something where, you know, they they mean really like, yes, the Democrats are out to get President Trump, but people interpret that as, yes, you really believe that a satanic cabal is taking over the world. What What's your view on that? So a lot of the polls that show these fantastic numbers aren't done very well. And I'll give you the reasons why. So you brought up the, the civics poll. It was pointed out to them shortly after they released that poll how lousy the question was. They went and re-ran it as just asking people if they were believers in QAnon and got 6%. So, of course, the media didn't cover that. They only covered the initial poll. So one of the problems that you have with the polling is that some of the polling houses were asking these double and triple barreled questions. You know, sort of like saying, do you like vanilla and chocolate and strawberry ice cream? Yes or no. (laughs) And it's just like people will say yes if they like one, two or all three. And that's what was going on here. They were questions were were like, do you believe in a conspiracy regarding deep state elites working against Trump and sex trafficking? So they wound up getting these fantastic numbers, but they were just lousy questions that tapped several different ideas that are probably far more popular than QAnon or are more popular than QAnon. Second, a lot of the polls about QAnon don't even have QAnon in the question, which is really weird because if the reason we're concerned about QAnon is because you have people taking cues from an anonymous source and potentially acting on them, you you should be able to tell them, are you following QAnon or not? That would be the most direct question. But many questions don't ask that. They ask about Satanists and pedophiles and sex trafficking and, and other stuff, which... Ideas like this pre-exist and have long existed outside of QAnon. So so those are the big problems with those polls. And of course, those are the ones that the media ran with. But when you just ask straight up questions, are you a believer in QAnon? Five or six percent. Are you a supporter of QAnon? Five or six percent. We've had people rate QAnon on feeling thermometers between zero and 100. And the average rating has been between 16 and, I think, 24 on our polls, which is no stunning endorsement. And just to put that in perspective, when we did, we, we did one of the polls just in Florida, and we also asked people about Fidel Castro. QAnon came in just two points better than Castro. So if you know anything about Florida, you know that that's not <laughs> a good endorsement. So, you know, even if someone wants to, to take issue with how I've been measuring this. I have been doing it in multiple ways and I've been doing it over time and haven't found this massive growth that everyone's been talking about. You mentioned earlier that there's a link between belief in conspiracy theories and violence. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Because obviously I think in in the wake of the Capitol riot, that's going to be at the forefront of a lot of our listeners' minds. So... If someone believes something, whether it's a conspiracy theory or not, they may want to act on it, right? So if you think that there's shadowy, powerful groups looking to do us harm, you may want to fight fire with fire. And people over history have, you know, whether it's the Capitol riot or Timothy McVeigh or numerous other people who have engaged in violent actions, um, including mass shootings, people believe something, they think it's true, and you know, they may eventually act on it. In terms of a disposition towards violence, yes. In this country, we find that people who tend to think more strongly in conspiratorial terms are also on our surveys more accepting of violence against the government to make their voices heard. So that does somewhat explain the Capitol riot. And, and, and I'll just I'll, I'll just throw this in there, too. I mean, attached to 
general conspiracy thinking. Once you get to that higher end, you find that people also have sociopathic personality traits, like I mentioned, inclinations towards violence. Other studies have found that people who are conspiracy thinkers are willing to conspire themselves, that they have a history of engaging in low-level crimes. So you put all this together and you wind up with antisocial people with antisocial beliefs willing to act in antisocial ways. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me 
now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So I want to ask you about the widespread culls of QAnon accounts across social media platforms. In the wake of the Capitol riot in particular, there was barely a shrug from people at the fact that Twitter and Facebook were just nuking tens and tens of thousands of accounts at a time without a shred of transparency in a way that I think normally would have attracted concerns about accountability. I myself have gotten into some trouble for suggesting that perhaps we need to complicate the conversation around QAnon a little bit and look at how difficult it is to draw the borders of where it starts and stops and isolate what exactly is harmful about some of that behavior. But it's fair to say that that's a minority view. Most people seem to think that platforms should have acted earlier, but if you ask people to pinpoint exactly the moment where QAnon obviously morphed into something dangerous, people get a little bit more vague. It's very hard to define the tipping point, I think. So what do you think about the way the platforms have handled QAnon and what they're doing now by trying to just erase as much of it as possible? This is my view, and this is going to be fairly controversial in some parts of it, but I don't think that taking the stuff down has had that much of an effect. I guess time will tell. But again, if conspiracy theories aren't increasing in the internet era, if QAnon conspiracy theories haven't really increased during the time they've been online, if coronavirus conspiracy theories didn't increase over the course of the pandemic, then what are we talking about? I don't know exactly what it is we're talking about then. And if you want to look at what caused the Capitol riot, I'm sure government would love to blame social media, but this was the government doing it. You had the president of the United States. You had sitting members of Congress, sitting senators encouraging this, urging people on as they were heading towards the riot, pumping their fist in the air, encouraging them. And, I mean, these politicians, through the mainstream media, have a lot more influence and reach than some dude with a tweet. So, you know, if, if, if Congress wants to start blaming someone for the Capitol riot, they should have held the president accountable, and they should have held the members of their own body accountable who are out there fomenting this. And shame on them for not doing so. Yeah, I think you you see a lot of that strangeness in the recent hearings with tech companies where, for example, some of the same members of Congress who were spouting conspiracy theories about, you know, stop the steal, encouraging the Capitol riot, were questioning <laughs> tech companies about why they hadn't done more. I think Evelyn wanted to jump in here as well. Yeah, I just wanted to add as well that I think something that's, you know, very notable here is that Congress didn't vote to condemn QAnon until... October. Meanwhile, people had been saying that the tech company should have done something far earlier than that. And I think that political action here is a certainly very important and and missing part of the puzzle. I mean, this is the thing. Political scientists have long known this about political opinions and conspiracy theories are, you know, similar to other political opinions in a lot of ways, is that they're driven very much by elite cues. So if you have a president you know, engaging in a lot of conspiracy theorizing, then people who follow that president are going to believe those conspiracy theories. So we we need to start blaming the institutions and individuals who are most responsible, and that's government and people in government and even our mainstream media institutions who, who often take part in conspiracy theorizing but are out of the other side of their mouth happy to condemn social media for whatever effect it has. I mean, the Trump phenomenon is a, is really weird. You don't normally have a president doing what Trump did, like spouting conspiracy theories all the time, but he did. You know, it's it's kind of a bug in the system that we normally expect the primary process to sort of vet candidates 
to get rid of the unacceptable ones so that we wind up with experienced leaders running for office who are fairly mainstream and normal, whatever that means. But that didn't happen with Trump. He was able to harness something that mainstream partisan politicians don't normally harness, and he was able to win with it. And he governed from the outside with conspiracy theories. But the, the, the parties and you know Congress needs to, they need to close those loopholes to not allow that to happen again. And they need to start holding their own members accountable for their own behavior. I mean, here's the interesting thing. I mean, and you brought up the idea that, you know, Congress condemned QAnon. You know, do we want Congress condemning every conspiracy theory or only certain ones? Which ones? I mean, why do we want Congress deciding for us what's true and what's not? I mean, I can condemn QAnon. I don't need my I don't need Marco Rubio to tell me. (laughs) Okay, so that's actually a perfect segue to the next question that I had. Extremely hypothetically, let's say that I knew that at least one major social media platform is trying to craft a policy to deal with conspiracy theories on its site, uh, with a view to defining a range of conspiracy theories that it would take down. So, you know, this goes to your point of like, should Congress condemn every conspiracy theory or is there some category that is particularly bad and harmful that we should both condemn and eliminate from the internet? So is there any way of drawing those lines of defining harmful conspiracy theories in a way that doesn't just amount to, I don't know, just take down the crazy stuff? And assuming that there is some conspiracy theory that that crosses the line into dangerous is there anything special about them that separates them from other harmful speech like incitement to violence or hate speech that requires a separate policy to address the conspiratorial aspect i mean i I think what i'm trying to get at is that there seems to be a lot of fear about conspiracy theories right now which leads to platforms wanting to show that they're addressing it somehow i'm quite skeptical as you might be able to tell from my question that there's a way to draft a conspiracy theory policy that has clear borders and sort of doesn't become just very subjective and driven by media narratives or public pressure am i wrong i'm not saying it couldn't be done but I don't think it could be done well, and I have yet to see that distinction made. I mean, again, conspiracy theory is an, is a big bucket of ideas, and it's expanding infinitely. So there's always new conspiracy theories. So, so the question is, how can we come up with some set of hard and fast rules about what should be banned and what shouldn't? Well, the problem with this is that, I mean, people who believe conspiracy theories believe them because they think they're true. So they don't want those ones banned. They just want to ban the ones the other guy believes in. <laughs> so so if everybody gets to use that as their standard, then we'll have nothing, right? We'll just be banning everything that somebody doesn't like. In terms of what's dangerous and what's not, I mean, the ideas themselves, I guess we could say they're dangerous if we were to say, well, they're accusing these people of doing something really awful and that could ignite people to want to act. Well, okay, but to me, the, the the real danger here is the people. I mean, because not everyone who hears QAnon is going to go run off and act on it. It's actually a very small select group of people, and many of the people who have acted on it are either already sociopathic or mentally ill. So I guess the question almost becomes, how do we make the Internet safe for people who are, you know, who have psychopathologies? And to me, the answer is you can't. (laughs) I mean, I guess there are distinctions to be made here, but when we're, you know, when we get to this idea of, well, what's dangerous and what isn't? Okay, that's tough to parse. I guess we could figure that out, but depending on how you define danger. And then the other issue becomes, well, are we going to ban them because they're, they're not true or because they're not proven? So if it's on epistemological grounds, now you run into another issue because are we going to say, well, it's not okay to believe that, you know, satanic pedophiles control the government, but it is okay to say that a talking snake tricked a rib woman into eating a magic apple, you know, prove either of those to me, but one seems to be okay. (laughs) The other one, Congress has condemned. 
on what epistemological grounds can you accept one and not the other? So, you know, over the last couple of years, I think the country has become very puritanical about truth, but also very uneven in how it's applying its standards for what's true and what isn't and what's acceptable and what's not. The idea of being puritanical about about truth is is fascinating. But before discussing that, I did want to ask, you know, we we've talked about sort of perhaps the the political consequences of conspiracy theories like QAnon or other conspiracy theories maybe less than people think. But on the other hand, there's been a lot of reporting and a lot of writing, first person writing from people who feel like they sort of have lost family members to QAnon and have found it painful and alienating and that it's sort of impossible to pull them back, that it's creating really big gaps in relationships and that there's no no way to sort of convince, you know, your mother or your cousin that the QAnon isn't real. So a couple questions. I mean, one is, is that true, right? Is there no way to explain to someone and convince them that this stuff isn't true? And second of, what do you make of that reporting about the sort of interpersonal consequences of QAnon. Is that exaggerated in your view as well? Or is that something that perhaps we should view differently than what you see as exaggerated political reporting about QAnon? So here's the thing is people don't like changing their minds that often. They don't like being wrong. And there are some ideas that people aren't going to negotiate on. So if they care about something, if something makes up part of their identity or it's a, an ingrained worldview, they're not just going to change their mind on it because you sent them a link or a fact check. And that's, that's for conspiracy theories and everything else, too. Go put a Republican and a Democrat in a closet for an hour. They're not going to come out <laughs> having changed each other's minds. Put a Catholic and a Jewish person in a closet. They're not going to come out you know, having, having negotiated through their religions and come out halfway each side or, or one having converted the other, but an atheist in a, in a born again, they're not going to negotiate on the 10 commandments and be like, well, we'll just pick our favorite five out of the 10 or something like that. So it's not just conspiracy theories. So, I mean, conspiracy theorists have that reputation, but I, th- I think it's, it's, it's deserved, but it's deserved for everyone. So I don't think it doesn't make them special in any way. I, I just think there's this expectation with conspiracy theories where people will look at a conspiracy theory they don't believe and say, well, I can't understand how anyone would believe that because the evidence is so stupid. So I'm just going to give you know the fact check or the link to this believer and it should change their mind. And they're shocked when they find out it doesn't. So they say, well, they must just be dogmatic. That's someone who just won't change their mind. So there must be something about conspiracy theories in particular that keeps people from changing their minds. But, but no, not, you know, not really. The, the believer probably adopted that conspiracy theory because it's, it's an expression of their underlying worldview, an expression of their identity. So they're not just going to give that up, you know, with a tweet. <laughs> so, and here's the thing, even if you could change their mind on some, on some conspiracy theory, you're just in a game of whack-a-mole because if their identity is someone who just believes lots of conspiracy theories and that's how they see the world, then you can debunk one conspiracy theory for them. And even if they agree with you, well, there's going to be 700 others that they're going to buy into too. So it's, it's, it's not going to do that much. I don't think. We've been talking about the fact that people in general do seem very worried about this right now. You know, there are calls for a reality czar to be appointed by the Biden administration, calls for much greater online crackdowns, uh, fears about the populace untethered from reality. But I think it's fair to say that throughout this conversation, you've seemed pretty sanguine and sort of seem to be suggesting in a way that we just need to learn to live with this. And while I might be a little bit inclined to believe that there has been some moral panic going on, or at least that there's been some sort of transference of panic about other things and political circumstances onto conspiracy theories. The idea that we do absolutely nothing sort of feels a little bit unsatisfying and depressing. Are you worried 
at all? You know, is there anything that you're watching for worrying signs and, and warning signs going forward? Or do you really think there's nothing worse happening right now and we don't really need to do anything at all to address, you know, the, the concerns that people are raising? Well, I don't think people are believing conspiracy theories more than they have been in the past, but that doesn't mean that they don't believe them. I mean, it's still a part of the human condition, and I would prefer that people believe them much less than they do. But that doesn't mean we can make up whatever causal factor <laughs> and have whatever, you know, panic about it. Because we're going to get, if we're getting the causal locus wrong, then, then our measures to fight it are going to be wrong and potentially counterproductive. I mean, my view is we probably have to do better critical thinking training in in the schools at an earlier age. We need to do better media literacy. And we need to get to people when they're young and start teaching them how to reason through things, what they should and shouldn't believe and whatnot. But here's the interesting thing is I just don't think people really want hard and fast rules for what's a conspiracy theory and what isn't, what should be banned and what shouldn't. because Everyone knows deep down inside that their ideas are going to get caught up in that net. So all these efforts are just very, you know, piecemeal and, you know, we'll ban this thing and that thing, but not these other things. So I think you, you, at the end of the day, you run the risk of cutting off a lot of important discourse and potentially putting a lot more power into the hands of people who are actually responsible for the problem and saying, Hey, Congress, even though, you know, many of your members were inciting this riot, we want you to write the rules on, on, on banning, you know, violent talk and conspiracy theories. I, I don't think that's right. So is there anything we can do then in the short term? I mean, your, your solutions there about, you know, better education, right? are sort of very long-term solutions, obviously. Thinking in the short term, not about QAnon, but about the the stop the steal theory, this idea that President Trump was somehow cheated out of the 2020 election by some, you know, nefarious combination of actions, which is, I would argue, sort of actively damaging to the democratic health of the country. Mm -hmm. Is there anything in your view that can be done in the short term about that? Yeah, don't elect Trump again. <laughs> when you put it like that, it sounds so easy. Well, he didn't get elected, right? <laughs> I mean, this is this is the problem. I mean, we're we're sort of conflating, you know, problems of social media with the problems of the president of the United States, right? So, if you don't have the president actively saying he was cheated, and he was saying it long before the election, he's been saying since 2015 that <laughs> the elections are all rigged. If you don't have that, then you don't have the Capitol riot. So that's the issue. One thing I think the parties need to do is to to be a little more selective in who they allow to run under their banner for office. Donald Trump probably shouldn't have been on the Republican stage in, in 2015, 2016, vying for the nomination. But neither should people like Marianne Williamson on the other side. So, you know, part of the job of of political parties is to, you know, winnow the field and organize preferences and to get rid of essentially dangerous choices, people who are unqualified or who shouldn't be in office for whatever reason. And they didn't do that. So we wound up with Trump, you know, but but this is the thing, and I have to keep coming back to it. 40% of the losing party after the presidential election is going to think that they were cheated. And that's pretty standard. Going into elections, about 40% of each party thinks they're going to be cheated. (laughs) This, This year was different because Trump and his allies and media and Congress kept pushing it. So it wasn't just 40% of Republicans who thought they were cheated. It was 80%. So you had the natural effect of losing, driving the belief they were cheated on top of the elite cues from the president and his allies. So you get rid of that president, you make it so so you don't have your political elites engaging in this rhetoric, and that seems to solve your problem. 
I mean, doing anything with Facebook and Twitter just is besides the point. So I think that's where you're sort of you're saying that conspiracy theories for losers comes from. But I think mm-hmm. sort of a lot of the things that you're pointing to just then are peculiarly American, says the Australian. And I'm wondering if there is anything distinct about American conspiracism. Are conspiracy theories different around the world or is this sort of just generally how it plays out everywhere? It's hard to know, but generally I say this, is that America is exceptional in many, many ways, but not with conspiracy theories. In that sense, we're kind of middling on par with other countries like the UK and Germany, less than some others, but more than others too. It's just it's just really hard to compare because any individual conspiracy theory is going to mean different things in different political contexts, right? But you're not going to find a place that doesn't have conspiracy theories. And, you know, a lot of this comes back to the reporting. <laughs> You'll find that reporting in, in probably in every country. <laughs> And even weirder, if you go through like the New York Times, for example, you'll find every time they're reporting on a conspiracy theory in some other country, they'll say, well, there's something unique about that country and those people that makes them especially prone to conspiracy theories. But but if you look through the reporting they've done in the last 30 or 40 years, you'll find it's like 50 different countries and all, sor- all sorts of different communities and demographic groups. So to them, everyone is the most likely to believe in conspiracy theories, no matter who they are or where they're from. So again, it's just it's just these claims that get thrown out there like they're the most conspiratorial they are, or, you know, or now is. And it's just it's never made with good evidence or reasoning. All right. That's all the time we have. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. You are very welcome. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright, and our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.